assisted dying in Oregon has worked safely and effectively for over 20 years, as you've just noted. And it really is a blueprint, so much so that nine other US states have copied it, yeah. as well as um, three, three states now in Australia, and um, as of next week might be a fourth state as well, and New Zealand, they've all copied the same model from Oregon. So it's, it's clearly a blueprint that, that has worked very well. Hi, Francesca. Hello. How are you? Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Yeah, very good. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm really uh, excited to, to have you on. Well, thank you. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. I um, came across you guys a little while ago when I was living down in Exeter, Dignity and Dying, um, and I was blown away by the, the speaker we had to come and speak to us down in Exeter. Um, so I, I've really wanted to get you guys on the podcast for a few, a few weeks now. So I'm really pleased that we've got you on. Um, so some people will have heard of Dignity and Dying. I think I may have shared the odd thing of yours um, online, but I guess quite a few maybe won't have. So do you want to just talk to me a little bit about who Dignity and Dying are, first of all, and then maybe we'll discuss who set it up, when and why? Absolutely. So Dignity and Dying, we're a campaign group and we're calling for the option of assisted dying for terminally ill, mentally competent adults here in the UK. Great. So we'll come on in a minute to some of the, the jargon, like the difference between assisted dying, assisted suicide and all of that in a minute. But do you want to just tell me sort of when it was set up and um, by who? Yeah, absolutely. We were originally set up in 1935. Wow. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. I should have looked so that up. A while ago, a while ago, yeah. By yeah. actually a group of volunteers, which included doctors and ministers of the church, actually. Right. Oh, um, interesting. Yeah. So British people have wanted to choose how they die for a really long time. Yeah. Public support may remains very high. It's about 84% mm. yeah. among demographics to this day. So we've been known as Dignity and Dying since I think 2003. Brilliant. And uh, what, what were you guys named before that? Uh, when we were set up, we were called the Voluntary Euthanasia Society. Oh. And we'll get into that um, later. I think the terminology has very much uh, changed over the years, but now we firmly support assisted dying for terminally ill people. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Because I saw that um, I was researching guys earlier and You've got a similar name to the group that was set up in Oregon in, in America, something about dignity and dying there as well, wasn't it? Mm, yeah, I think they were death with dignity. Yeah, or... yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think that word dignity is really crucial and actually it sells as, I think that's, I think that's the most important word because obviously, and we'll, we'll come on to this in a, in a minute as well, but for me, it's that, it's that like excruciating lack of dignity as well as lack of choice, but that lack of dignity where, you're, you know, in, in your final hours, you're, um, you, you're, you, you can't, you don't feel yourself, you're, um, you, there's so much of your physical ability gone. And yeah, that, that sense of dying with dignity, I think, obviously, for me, I'm only 30. So it's not something I, I've, I've had to really consider too much. But when my, when my granddad um, was poorly, um, I just remember, that was one of the first times that I ever considered this sort of stuff. And I remember thinking, you know, we, we were happy to put animals down, dogs when they're suffering, horses, cats, but for humans, it just seemed wrong that we would, we would 
allow our animals, our pets to die with dignity, but not our, you know, our, our human loved ones. It just didn't seem the right way around to me. Um, but we'll come back to that in a minute, I think. So I just wanted to ask you, obviously, you guys have, have been around for a long time and you, you campaign a lot and you've had obviously lots of successes. What's been your biggest success today? And, and then maybe we'll ask you what the biggest challenges have been today as well. Yeah, this is this is quite a, a hard um, one to, you know, to pick one event because actually we have had a lot of successes. I mean, obviously we haven't had the, the biggest success yet because then hopefully I wouldn't be here because yeah, we were... Course. And, yeah, and you know, yeah. certainly as a campaign group, we aim to not exist anymore. We aim to change the law, and yeah. and that that's our ultimate aim, which is why we're we're still in, in action. But we yeah. have had quite a few successes. I think one of the biggest, um, really, really critical successes that we had was in 2009. There was a woman called Debbie Purdy, and she we supported her with a groundbreaking case where she challenged the law. And in fact, it led to the Crown Prosecution Services um, issuing guidance at the time. It's actually when Keir Starmer was also Director of Public Prosecutions. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Sorry, it's probably quite a lot of legal jargon, but they, um, they clarified uh, that uh, compassionate amateur people who assist loved ones to die um, should not be prosecuted or, or it's not in the public interest prosecute those cases mm. so that really clarified um what a lot of people had been worrying about for a while of if they traveled to another country to have an assisted death mm. would their ones uh, face prosecution but it didn't change the law it simply um well in some respects it created a bit of a gray area but at yeah. the time really groundbreaking step towards um, a change in the law we also then supported the noel conway case in 2017 um, Noel Conway, who's still alive, who has motor neuron disease, and he was challenging the law. And although he didn't um, win his case, the, the judges said that it was an issue of transcendent public importance and something that Parliament needed to deal with. So that, that was really, really important. But we've had huge successes in terms of shifting the medical profession and yep. medical opinion in this country. Um, lots of the me medical colleges are now neutral, so they don't actively campaign one way or the other but they are they they recognize the range of voices and that includes the nurses the physicians and the um, British Medical Association did a huge survey of their their membership recently we've made huge gains in parliament as well we now have um we're now sort of level uh, with our opponents in the house of commons we've got majority of support in the house of lords and very recently the health secretary has commissioned data um, and further research into some of the problems with our current law. So, so that's that's been really, um, yeah, we've had some really great successes. And the media are often uh, really on our side as well. We've had some very high profile media cases as well as Noel Conway and Debbie Purdy, um, individuals like uh, Jeff Whaley and Dennis Eccleston, who unfortunately are no longer with us, but their cases have really kind of resonated with the public and, and yeah. brought them more politicians on side as well yeah uh, but the, in terms of the biggest challenge it, it is really kind of one challenge in a way it's, it's our opposition and they are a small but very vocal minority who are against individuals having choice and having autonomy over our lives really not just our deaths and mm. um, often the same people who oppose lgbt rights um, who oppose abortion 
or drug reform or you know lots of progressive social issues which I'm mm. sure your listeners you know will, will be in favor of but there's, there's a lot of the same people who oppose some of those yeah. so small um, small c conservatives are, are we talking about in parliament well they are a small but vocal minority and they are um they're too often part of the establishment in this country okay. so parliament uh, does unfortunately have quite a few of them mm. uh, and they're often connected to the the church are yeah. not always but but often and and they found their way into the medical profession um in some areas as well so yeah. so they, they tend to be part of the fabric in the establishment of this country despite popular opinion yeah. and public opinion being much more much more the other way yeah because i saw on your website that um 80 of religious people support a change in the law and assisted dying um mm. but then just justin welby the archbishop of canterbury he's anti he, he's he's an opponent of yours but you've had two former archbishops who support your cause yes absolutely so you know faith uh, groups and faith leaders are not you know monolithically opposed to no. us we yeah. have um, lots of individuals who, who've come out and, and shown their support but it tends to be more those at the top who are for whatever reason um you know less in favor but ordinary people of faith ordinary people who go to church or go to synagogue are actually quite um broadly in favor of a change in the law mm. so these establishment figures are actually quite out of touch basically absolutely absolutely yeah. and 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 to some extent parliament is as well yeah oh totally yeah you don't have to tell me about that <laughs> about how out of touch i mean particularly the government benches but but yeah yeah but I won't, I won't draw you on that because presumably you're, you're very, um, you're very cross-party, aren't you, or, or non-partisan as, as, as a charity. So, um, so I wanted to. So on your website, obviously you've got sort of like questions, the sort of like normal questions that you get asked, and obviously it, it, I think it's important for, for me to just throw some of these at you because when when we had asked, we could come down to talk to us in Exeter, we were just throwing them at them because we didn't really know the answers ourselves. So the first one I wanted to ask you was. Um, what are the problems with the current law, um, the current laws on assisted dying at the moment, which presumably are very um, archaic um, and yeah, don't are very unethical, presumably. Mm. So we yeah we we think the law in this country is it's broken, it's unsafe, and it's unfair. Mm. Um, terminal people are presented with quite a stark set of choices at the end of life, um, and they also have few people that they can discuss them with. So our law, um, which came in the Suicide Act, which came in in 1967, it criminalizes assisting another person to end their life. Although it's perfectly legal to end your own life, it's against the law to help somebody else. But what's defined as help is also quite broad. So in fact, what it's, what it's done is, is um, has really driven the practice underground and overseas or yeah. left people with no other choice but to suffer against their wishes so even talking about how you might help someone end their own life is also against the law really so wow okay yeah. advice on how to travel abroad yeah um, you can advise someone on the way to end their own life that might be um less traumatic than another way for example um, people can't talk to their doctors about assisted dying many doctors won't have that conversation with patients at all because they're mm. afraid of breaking the law 
Um, so this means we, you know, we, we've we've done some research on this, and actually before the pandemic, one British person a week was traveling to Switzerland for an assisted death. And this is one of the only countries where it's actually legal to, uh, they, they allow foreign nationals to die there. We also know that 17 dying people suffer as they die each day. So these are people who, despite having access to excellent palliative care that we have in this country, uh. will, will still be in pain as they die or have other symptoms that are really undignified, which are I'll spare your listeners, um, and I won't go into yeah. detail, but there are many really awful symptoms, not yeah, just that people can experience when they're, when they're dying. And as a result, we know that other people try to avoid this and, and attempt to take their own life in this country. So many people can't afford to travel abroad. It's very expensive to go um, to Switzerland, and there's a lot of bureaucracy involved as well. Um, and we think as many as 10% of suicides in this country are by people with a life-limiting illness. And uh, this is actually what we're, we're very um, pleased that the health secretary has noticed this. Yeah. And actually asked the Office of National Statistics to gather more information and data on this, on this problem. So, so really banning assisted dying doesn't make the problem go away. Um, and even with the best palliative care and even with you know, greater investment in palliative care it doesn't matter there will always be that small group of people who are a small but significant proportion of dying people um, who experience who will experience prolonged suffering mm. as they die and and they want the choice to op opt out of that and i you know i i just i can't see why we should deny that to them nor can i if if, if i'm being perfectly honest um and I was, I was going to quickly sneak this one in as well. I, I, I saw on your website as well, it says something, I can't remember the number now, but about the, the number of doctors who are putting their careers and their, their own freedom potentially on the line by choosing the ethical option and giving the advice or, or doing something that's at the moment against the law, but would just, to, the, to, to most of us, would seem perfectly ethical. Um, so all, I guess we're putting doctors in a really hard position as well, aren't we? Or people in the NHS. Mm, absolutely. And we know now that many doctors do actually support a change in the law. Yeah. A lot of them are really afraid of, of having any conversations because there hasn't really been much clarity on what they can and can't say. Um, and, and often the law that we have, the ban on assisted dying, kind of shuts down some of those conversations. Yeah. A fear of wandering into illegal territory means yeah. that yeah. Any conversation about it at all. Obviously, there are individuals who are willing to stick their neck out a bit, um, but but it shouldn't be down to that luck of the draw. Depending on which healthcare professional you have right in, in front of you, we, we know, for example, that some um, GPs have been very helpful when someone is uh, trying to go to Switzerland and helped with documents and even faxed documents straight from the GP's surgery. And yet we know others who straight away say, no, I can't help you at all. I'm seeking yeah. legal advice uh, and can be actually very obstructive the, the other way. Mm. Uh, and these are people who are obviously, in terms of the patients, these are people who are already incredibly vulnerable and stressed and anxious and, and you know, suffering. And to, to have to put them through even more suffering um, as a result just seems so, just seems so wrong. Um, I wanted to ask you about Oregon then, because Oregon is... 
um, a sort of a blueprint for you guys, aren't they? Um, and I wanted to ask you if the evidence from Oregon, because they they bought their law in 1997, so they they've been running this now as an experiment for decades. Does the evidence um, justify your position in terms of what we've seen from Oregon? Absolutely, I think it does. Um, assisted dying in Oregon has worked safely and effectively for over 20 years, as you've just noted. And it really is a blueprint, so much so that nine other US states have copied it, yeah. as well as um, three, three states now in Australia, um, as of next week might be a fourth state as well, and New Zealand, they've all copied the same model from Oregon. So it's, it's clearly a blueprint that, that has worked very well. Mm. And we've examined it as well, and, and the Oregon the state of Oregon produce a report every year into the law. So they, there's quite a lot of data available to look at. And there have been no cases of abuse in that in that over 20 year period now. That's really interesting, so, yeah. Yeah, so, it's incredibly safely and there are really strong safeguards in place. Yeah, so that's what I was gonna ask you next was what are those safeguards? Because I think that's what a lot of people would be concerned about is can this system be exploited? Are people gonna lose their lives prematurely or are people going to be forced down a road where they wouldn't necessarily have gone what are the checks and balances so the key one um first of all really is that is the criteria so uh, in oregon and that's what we support here um assisted dying is for someone who's already dying they are they have a terminal condition so they are it's not about a life ending prematurely it's about someone who is reaching the end who's pretty close to the end yeah. and they want the control over their their ending so firstly they have to be terminally ill and they have to be mentally competent they have to be fully uh, you know fully mentally aware of everything that's that's going on around them so that's those two are really important safeguards anyway yeah and on top of that you always have to be assessed by two independent doctors um, and they will certify that you, you you fit that criteria but also that you are making this decision free from any coercion um, and the dying person also must take the medication themselves that's really critical they can be helped but the final act must be their own and they must consent right up until the point where they take the medication yeah okay i'm, I'm just curious i mean you're not obviously um you do obviously work in the NHS, so you may not know this um but how how would they um, determine if somebody is mentally competent? What's the do you know the process involved in that? So here in the UK, we already have mental capacity laws that operate in lots of other ways. So we have the Mental Capacity Act, which has been in place, I think, since 2005. Okay. So that's something that for lots of other types of you know healthcare professionals are used to making capacity assessments. I see. I see. Okay. Lots of other areas. Yeah. So that that wouldn't be wouldn't be an issue really that's okay. something that just apply from other areas straight into this I, I guess the other the other one that, that um gets thrown around a lot is would this lead to a slippery slope would it open pandora's box would we be bringing in euthanasia next would we be going down you know a sort of netherlands and belgium approach what's what's your sort of answer to that hmm uh well I'd, I'd say no, it's not. It's definitely not uh, the case. Um, and that's particularly going back to what I said about assisted dying being when a dying person with full mental capacity takes control of their death. Yeah. They request the, the help from a healthcare professional. They request life ending medication. 
but they have to take it themselves. And I firmly believe, and the evidence suggests that the law you bring in as a country is the law you get. And you know, the N Netherlands and Belgium have brought in laws that that they believe work for their population, and that's fine. But those laws have always been different to the ones we're campaigning for. They didn't start where we are and then go broader. They always were broadened in okay. the first. Yeah. And in Oregon and the other US states in Australia and New Zealand, they've never expanded their laws. They've always been narrower and focusing on dying people. So they're just different. They're different issues, really, in, yeah. in that. Yeah. But also, I think, I think in general, a slippery slope argument, I think it's quite insulting, personally. I think it's quite insulting to our parliament, to our legal system, to say that one law inevitably leads to another. Mm. Because parliament and the court's job to enact and enforce the law, and they need to do that to the letter. And I think it really undermines you know, their role to suggest that it, the floodgates will, will open. Yeah, I, I've, to be honest, I've always found the slippery slope argument quite fallacious. It really is like the last kind of argument you, you go to, isn't it, when you've run out? Um, but no, but I, I, but I think that is something that people do have a kind of just intrinsic fear of is, oh, if we if we just allow the ending of life in any way, that could start to normalise the idea that life is no longer precious and we could just really nearly start, you know, blah, blah, blah. So, but I, I, but I, I totally get what you said. And I think, like you just pointed out, Oregon have had these laws since 1997 and they've remained as they are. No one's sought to come along and say, we need to up this for any, mm. any reason. So yeah, that's good. That's, so, go, sorry. Oh, sorry, I was just going to add that that's also really key. No, no, nowhere where they've brought in assisted dying has, has ever overturned it. They've never gone back. That's, that's, yeah, that's a really interesting point. Yeah, yeah. Although I guess, um, I, this is a slightly off to topic, but we, we've, we're suddenly at a point in America now where they're talking about, um, a, a, well, I saw Texas, was it today? They, they've just brought in a new law on abortion where you can't, you can't get an abortion now after six weeks or something, even in the case of like rape and abuse or something. So they are going backwards on some things in America, but it's good to know that on this, they're not. Um, which is pleasing because you know America is uh, in, a, in, a, in a dark place in my opinion. But so I just wanted to I wanted to ask you then what's the distinction between assisted dying, assisted suicide, and euthanasia? Because these are three different concepts, mm. aren't they? Mm. So I think I've already explained what assisted dying, assisted dying is. is. Yeah, you have. Yeah, yeah. Very much what a, when a dying person is taking control. Yeah. Assisted suicide is similar, but but it's not necessarily that the person is dying but perhaps they've got some kind of long-term or chronic condition um, so that their life, they may, they may have lived on for many more years, but they've decided, you know, that this is, this is a point where they've, they've reached enough. Mm. Um, euthanasia has become the term to refer to when someone ends someone else's life. So assisted suicide, the person still has to make the decision themselves and take the medication themselves. Whereas euthanasia is when someone might end. It's like when you take your dog to the vet, that is actually euthanasia. So the dog doesn't say, I consent to this. Yeah, um, yeah. You, you know, the vet makes the decision for them. So they are quite, they are quite different. And that's why we think the language is, is really important. Yeah. So I wanted to just ask you about what the situation is in the Netherlands and Belgium. Because although we've literally just said that you guys wouldn't argue for um 
additional laws to come in to match sort of Netherlands and Belgium. Are you able to comment on why Belgium and Netherlands have gone like one step further and legalized uh, assisted suicide and euthanasia? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I don't, I can only presume that that's what the public there want um, and also what their, their parliament and their government um, have wanted as well. So I, I don't know, I don't know that there was any kind of necessarily any sort of different evidence or, or anything of, of like that. The, the Netherlands are generally quite a liberal country on many issues, as you probably know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure why they've always had broader laws, but I know that they, they've always been that way from the start. Um, it's not been something that's come in kind of one after the other. Yeah. And, and you guys are firmly of the opinion that what they have done is not what you would like to see in the UK. We are firmly of that opinion. And that's partly because we know that's not what the British public want either. So the 84 percent for assisted dying is for people who are terminally ill. Yeah. And that public support really drops. I don't know what it's like in the Netherlands, but certainly for, for British people, that's not what they're asking for. So mm. we're campaigning for what we know that the British people will support. Mm. And also the, the really strong, um, safe track record that we know has been replicated by other countries is the old Oregon model. That does appear to be on the global scale more popular. Yeah. Um, because it's safer um, and the, the safeguards are stronger. Mm. So that's that's really what we're going for is the safest and the one that has the highest public support. But there's also an element of we know what our um, politicians will be willing to accept as well. And having done lots of campaigning, I can tell you for free that there are, you know, hardly any politicians who would support Dutch or, or Belgian law in this country. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, when you were just saying the numbers there, I was I was just thinking to myself, it must be so nice to be campaigning in a space where there's such a, a large consensus for your position, because having come from campaigning on Brexit, where it's literally 50-50 and it's so toxic and so divisive, um, I was just thinking, it must be lovely to just have 80% support, 85% support, wherever you go. Um, but yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we'll get on to that. No, it's fine. We'll, we'll get onto that, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I wanted to ask you about what happened in 2014 and 2015, because in those two years, there were two separate bills that went, one went through the laws, one went through um, the Commons, and it looked as though we were going to actually get new, a new bill um, that, that brought in um, assisted dying. So, so what happened firstly in 2014 in the Lords? Mm. So... Charlie Faulkner, um, he had a private member's bill and he decided to do it on assisted dying. And he actually had really high support for his bill yeah. uh, in the House of Lords. So it passed the second reading um, and it was actually going, starting to go to the committee stage. But because it was a private member's bill, they're not always given um, a priority in terms of timing and scheduling. And it actually ran out of time before yeah. the... 15 general election so it didn't fail it didn't it wasn't lost it was actually on a path to victory mm. but when that election was called in 2015 it, you go back to square one unfortunately yeah. that's just how the system works yeah so um then rob maris when he was called when he he was drawn near the top of the ballot in the commons he decided to take on that baton from charlie faulkner 
into the Commons. Um, but, but many of the MPs were very new. So the election had happened in May and Maris's, Maris's bill was being debated in September. So there was quite a big churn that year and there were a lot of new MPs. And they weren't really educated on the bill or the details of the bill. The discussions we've had just now about the distinction between assisted dying and assisted suicide or what happens in Oregon or what happens in the Netherlands, they were not clued up on that at all. Mm, yeah. And our opponents put a lot of effort into trying to block this and there was a lot of scaremongering. Um, and sort of vociferous campaigning. But interesting, what you just said about public opinion, I think is also really interesting. So a lot of MPs we spoke to said they thought public opinion was more divided. They thought it was 50-50. Really? They base it on what happened, what their post bag looks like. Yeah. And they get an equal number of letters for and against something. They, they often think that's what public opinion is. Yeah. When really our opponents had, had whipped up all their supporters to lobby hard at their MPs, mm. but they only actually represent a small proportion. So it really led us to regroup and focus much more on the grassroots. And that's actually, when I joined the organization, we, we really had decided to take a slightly different approach and focus a lot more on grassroots and people's personal experiences and getting individuals um, who support a change in the law, encouraging and supporting them to go and talk to their MPs directly in their constituency, because that's what really has a huge impact yeah. on an MP. Yeah, uh, that, that's interesting what you said about um, the MPs not, not necessarily knowing because they were judging it on the emails. I wonder if, um, obviously, I, I presume, well, I, I did see the results in, in the Commons, and obviously it was it was a big, big chunk of the Conservative Party. Did Were there any Conservatives that sort of, was it was it like ten percent of? Do you remember in twenty fifteen? There were some conservatives who voted in favour for yeah, sure, but a, a, um, a small, smallish number. In, yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there were, and we we've gained a lot actually in the Conservative Party since then. We've gained okay. a lot of supporters. Yeah, um, there weren't any. Another issue we had at the time, there weren't really any big names, big hitters, who came out in the Conservative Party, and that does have an impact on other MPs whether yeah, they'll. True they'll be swayed. And you also get a momentum effect once um, MPs don't think it's going to win. They don't want to stick their neck out and vote yeah. for something that's, that's going to lose. So yeah, they, they... You, don't, you don't want to die on a hill um, if you know that the battle's lost sort of thing. So. Exactly. But the reverse is also true. If it's, if it's close and looks like it's going in our favour, suddenly they'll all pile on as well, yeah, like they yeah. equal, equal marriage. Yeah, yeah, true, yeah. No, but I was just going back to what I was um, saying about the constituencies, I just wonder if, um, it, obviously, in, in our first-past-the-post um, sort of parliament, we've got constituencies that are very conservative, um, where maybe the opinion in that, in that constituency might be closer to 50-50, I guess, um, whereas maybe the national um, overall... Um, opinion on this is like 80 percent. i did perhaps that's the reason uh, at that stage but presumably that can't be the case for for like however many it was at that at that stage so yeah i, I but we, maybe we'll, maybe we'll, in a minute we'll come on to where we are now um because we've got obviously got something going through now but um i just wanted to ask you where the various parties stand currently in terms of their position or if they have a position on this now because I'm sure I read that at least two do have a position and are on your side. 
I, I didn't know which two they were. Sorry, so the Green Party and the Liberal Democrats. Okay, they're the two that I assumed. Yeah, okay. They both have policies in support of assisted dying, but also actually the SNP recently um, put in their manifesto for, for, the, for the last election um, yes. that they would like to hold a citizens' assembly on assisted dying. Okay. Which is really promising. The Conservatives and Labour don't have a policy, but they allow their members a free vote because it's an issue of conscience. So they won't whip um their members to vote in a, okay. in a certain way. yeah Keir Starmer who's leader of the Labour Party um he's he's a big supporter yeah the yeah he's he spoke in favor of the 2015 bill I think didn't he mm. because he was director of public prosecutions when the Debbie Purdy case that I mentioned before yeah came of course in. so yes yeah, so then there are and now actually in the Conservatives we've got um other high profile individuals who support or who are at least not against people like Jeremy Hunt. Okay. Yeah. Um, so so I think I think we're actually doing well, in some respects we don't want to make it a party political issue because we've actually got we're doing quite well in both Conservatives and Labour and yeah. as well as the Green Party and, and the Lib Dems and the SNP where we've always had consistently high support. And not and not Plied? Plied aren't do you know anything about Plied? don't know officially where they are i know we've got um mps like ben lake who's supportive um, okay okay yeah i don't know um across the board where they are okay yeah. interesting yeah and obviously you've got you've got you've got clear majority support in the house of lords we do yes we um there have been there has been a bit of churn but we certainly had uh, a majority of support in during the faulkner bill and we don't mm. think that's uh, materially changed yeah and we've also got a small majority of support in Holyrood in Scotland, where because it's a devolved issue for Scotland. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Do, do you know if the Scottish Greens are the same as the England and Wales Scot uh, Greens? Yes, they, they do. Well, they are separate, but they do also support assisted support. dying. OK, yeah, yeah. Great. So, yeah, so you have a majority in Hollywood as well. Mm. In, as well. So, yeah. Mm, we do. yeah. Good. Which is and, and, uh, so earlier you listed quite a few countries. I, I noted on your website it said that Austria is um, ha has basically said that they're going to um, change their law. Um, there were there were like a handful of others as well. So it's it, clearly it's something that a lot of countries are currently looking at. Um, mm. So it, I guess it could just be that there's just a wave, um, a global wave on this in the next sort of ten years. And it feels like mm. you know we're obviously we're not. It doesn't for me. We just don't appear to be a country that wants to lead things anymore. We're, we're quite happy to follow these days. Um, but this is clearly something that if, you know, we're talking 80, 85 percent of the public, it's, it's a case of the MPs and the politicians catching up, isn't it? As opposed to trying to convince more of the public, which seems to be already there really on this. Absolutely. And I think that's that's why it's, we really need more people to write to their MP and speak to them about it and say why you support the law. Because I think a lot of that 84 percent, there's a bit of a passive support that we need to galvanize more and have more people coming out and saying yeah. that they support us yeah. and demonstrating to their their politicians that they can feel confident and know there isn't going to be a backlash and in fact most of their constituents are going to be behind them mm. um you're right that other countries spain have legalized recently yeah, of course yeah that's another one yeah our neighbors in ireland have a bill at the I moment know going through the soil, which is really exciting. Um, Jersey and the Channel Islands, they've got a citizen's jury on assisted dying at the moment. 
um, as you say, Austria and Germany have both had court rulings. They haven't quite put in frameworks yet, but they've had their courts have declared that it that it is a right. Yeah. And yeah, so it's, it's there's a ripple effect happening mm. all over. Yeah. And I agree on, on other areas like abortion or equal marriage. We've always led the way, so it is a real shame that we're we're not leading the way. But I do hope that we will catch up very soon. Yeah, I mean, I'm not I'm not going to ask you to agree with me on this, but I mean, I think if we had a Labour government, we probably would be leading the way in a lot more progressive stuff. But um, so we've got Baroness Meacher's um, bill, private member's bill in the Lords that's getting its first reading on Wednesday next week. Mm -hmm. So how is that different to, well, firstly, well, no, let me ask you it this way. How is it different to Lord Faulkner's in 2014? And if it's not any different, do you view its success or its trajectory as, as being any different? Mm. Uh, it won't be that different. Um, and that's because Faulkner's bill was successful. It yeah, did yeah. Reading. It was really yeah. popular. And, and the Lords added some additional safeguards as well. So mm. um, having a High Court judge oversee the process for example was added in and that proved very popular yeah so but that was um, voted through unanimously i think wasn't it i, I read i think so yeah. so yeah um so we we would keep those aspects of the fault in the bill i imagine because they were they were really popular yeah um we will, we will obviously take a look and see if there's anything that our um you know colleagues have, have added in australia and new zealand that we think might also bring additional support you know, if there are any additional safeguards yeah. um, but fundamentally it won't it won't change I don't think materially from the Falkland bill because I think that was a success um, unfortunately it ran out of time and I mm. think this time around the mood in parliament has really shifted we've got far more MPs on side um, the House of Lords has also you know the makeup of the House of Lords has changed a little bit we've got some more um, progressive voices coming in as well People like um, Ruth Davidson, who's coming to the House of Lords. She's a big supporter. Oh, really? In, I didn't know that. Okay, interesting. Party. Yeah, and she's and she's got faith as well. So that's that's also quite promising. Mm. Um, so so no, I think I think it will be um, it will be along broadly similar lines, and I think we're feeling. I don't know. I, dare, dare I say confident? I, I don't know if I can. Yeah. I can, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean. <laughs> hopeful is probably yeah well, I mean good good because like uh, for me so you know campaigning in the progressive space I think us us poor progressives these days we're just bad and bruised we're just looking for a win anywhere so if we can get this through that would be a fantastic achievement uh, and something we can finally like wave our flag proudly about and be like hooray Britain's done something good for a change um so <laughs> yeah exactly um I was going to ask you if you feel as though Boris Johnson's 80 seat majority which is proving very damaging to any a lot of progressive causes right now might might prove damaging to to progress on this issue i don't think it has that much impact actually um because assisted dying is always a conscience issue it's a free vote so there won't be any whipping That's and true. every mp is an individual who gets to make their own mind up on this yeah. which isn't the case on lots of other issues where they're really kind of held in line um, yeah. by the government. Um, and that won't be the case here. So it really is every MP is an individual, which is why we do really rely on supporters getting in touch and contacting their MPs and 
telling them why it matters. And mm. sometimes I think, you know, people don't always think contacting your MP is the sort of uh, sexy, interesting way of campaigning these days. Lots of people want to be out protesting and doing stuff on social media, but it's actually really, really important. It's such yeah. a important fabric of our democracy to, mm. if you're feeling angry or frustrated about something, contact your MP, even if you don't agree with your MP on other issues, they, they might agree with you on this, or you might be able to influence them and, and slowly you know, shift them onto our side. So it is a pure numbers game, essentially. We need a majority. We need you know, just over half. We don't have to convince all 650 MPs, but we do need to convince just a, a small majority of them. Our support in the Conservative Party has gone up a lot. Uh, we still have slightly more support in, in Labour, but actually, uh, I think a point you made earlier, actually, ordinary ordinary Conservative voters are in fact quite supportive of us. Mm. And we've, we've looked at polling. So although we have a lot of support from, you know, from progressives, and I imagine lots of people listening to this podcast, we do also get quite good support across the, the board from, you know, more traditional small C Conservatives, um, you know, from the kind of red wool uh, area that everyone's talking about at the moment. We get yeah. quite support from red wool voters and we're doing a bit more polling on that as well. So actually that, you know, it, we're not um, we're not limited by that at all. It is it really is an issue that that can unite people from all directions. Yeah. And that's really interesting, actually. Um, and again, I'm just going to go back to that point I made earlier about uh, it's just so nice to have consensus in these groups which the last few years have just been at total odds you know each other's necks about everything so maybe this is a nice little place where we can stop and um you know shake hands you know in the in the what was it called between the trenches the, the no man's yeah. land yeah mm. um yeah i mean that's great that's, that's really pleasing to hear and it's I'm, I'm glad to hear that conservatives um are supportive of this as well because obviously it's most people who vote conservative tend to be older and so it's it's in it's in their interest as well in, in so many ways isn't it like younger people like myself at the age of 30 it's not on our horizons yet obviously it will be one day um so it, it it makes so much sense for for those older people um to be thinking about this as well and i'm glad that they're they're thinking you know you know in 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 this way because obviously and the other thing i was going to mention was i, I, I we haven't had the results of the census yet but Polling has shown that you know fifty percent of the country these days um, are non-religious. So I guess that dwindling religiosity perhaps has impacted public opinion in favour of this, because presumably a lot of the um, opposition in other countries on this sort of thing will come from religious lobbying, won't it? Mm. Yes, it, it will definitely, and I think that will have an impact, like it did with issues like equal marriage, for example. Yeah. Yeah, an abortion, yeah. I think that dwindling uh, religion. But actually another point we haven't really uh, spoken about is I think, uh, although you're absolutely right, older older people tend to be thinking about this issue a bit more, but I think the pandemic has really thrown up death and dying. I made it, you know, something that everyone is more aware of actually and made yeah. it something. Unfortunately, a lot of younger people have now come into contact with death in their family or, or you know in their in their wider circle and and i think that has made a lot more people actually sit up and think about their own mortality which although isn't a very cheery subject it's no. actually important that we are thinking about it 
Um, so I think that's perhaps engaged people of all ages, um, maybe even more. No, that's a really good point. I might just sneak this in just because we've, we've still got a little bit of time left. But do you, do you, as a campaigner, do you find it tricky to campaign on something that's quite sort of, I guess, not macabre, but kind of, it's not the cheeriest of, of things to, I mean, I, I, people who campaign on the climate emergency must also feel a little bit like this at times as well. But is it, is it do you have to be quite um, robust sort of emotionally to campaign on this sort of stuff? Because you're obviously, presumably you're, you're coming into contact with people who are suffering. Um, and obviously some of the people you named earlier, I, I, I remember like Terry Pratchett, who, who I used to love, Terry Pratchett, mm -hmm was a, a, a somebody that, that you worked with wasn't he um so is it do you need do you need to be quite robust to campaign in this space well i think it's it's like a lot of issues really it's you know those stories although they can often be quite sad and mm. emotional that really gives you the motivation to want to do something to want to make the change it yeah. makes you angry and frustrated and i think yeah. that's true of a lot of other a lot of other issues that you might want to campaign on um you know, they might involve something that's actually quite distressing or or bleak, but you're you're campaigning to try and overturn that so it doesn't have to happen again. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I see that in, in quite a positive way. And we meet some amazing people and we're always trying to present our arguments um, and, you know, show things in, in a positive light because really it's about the vision for the world we want to see. Yeah, of course. Yeah. We want society to be. Um, and and people are so uh, they're so grateful and they're they're so thankful for what we're doing and we're so grateful to all of their hard work as well and, and we do make sure that we we support each other we've got a really good team um, and everyone's very supportive of one another and we all you know kind of make sure we take time out if we are dealing with something quite um, you know emotional or mm. whatever mm. we are there for each other um, which yeah. which which is great. Yeah, good, good. Um, so finally, last question. Um, how, obviously, I, I know you just sort of touched on us a little bit when you said uh, we, we ought to be emailing our MPs, but how, beyond that, how else can members of the public, perhaps those who are listening to this podcast and are like, yeah, I want to help this. What, what, what can we do to help? Uh, great. There are lots of things you can do. Uh, firstly, I would suggest that you sign up to receive our emails. We tend to send emails out once a week with all the important news but also you know details of things like emailing your mp and what's coming up and so on so if you go to our website which is just dignityanddying.org.uk and you can sign up there to our email list you can also follow us on twitter and facebook at dignity in dying um, and that way you'll see you know if you can share our content on social media that's also really appreciated but even just having conversations with colleagues, friends, family, the more people we can get talking about this and, and, and saying how frustrated they are and, again, talking to their MPs as well, the more uh, likely and the, the faster that that change will happen. Brilliant. Um, Francesca, thank you very much. Well, thank you, James. It's really been a pleasure to talk to you. And yourself, yeah, it's been, it's been super. What I'll do is I'll make sure that I put all the links when I upload this in the description so anyone that wants to sign up to the newsletter um, or who hasn't liked your socials, um, they can do that quite easily. So we'll, I'll do that as well. Oh, I forgot to say we're, we're on Instagram as well. Oh, on Instagram. I'll do yeah. that as well. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, got to get the youngies, the youngsters involved as well, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just go, thank you very much. Thank you.
but yeah <laughs> thank you thank you it's been a pleasure